can be seated. So in our study on the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae long ago, just about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we get to the thesis statement of the letter in verses 6 and 7 of Colossians chapter 2. So I invite you to have that open in front of you as we'll dig into this somewhat slowly this morning. Therefore, as you have received or as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the key exhortation of the apostle to this young church. And we find it at the end of verse 6. Walk in him. So walk in him. That gives us his heart for these believers in this small town in the Roman Empire. You've been transferred, he's told them before, or delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So now under the lordship of Jesus as king, as citizens in that kingdom, walk in him. Keep going. Press on. Press in. Continue down the path which God has placed you on by his grace and mercy. Don't let anything distract you or take you off the path, live the life that is appropriate to the new identity that you've been given as sons and daughters of the living God. I can't think of a, a, better, Sunday, or a better text for the Sunday when we are confirming many teenagers and seeing many of them baptized as well. This is a significant day in your life if you're here and that's happening to you in a few minutes. This message, walk in him is a message to carry forward with you from this day on. And it's a message for all of us, really. We're going to dig into this in just two parts. In the the first part of of verse 6, really trying to understand more of this this exhortation, walk in him. And then verse 7, we'll look at these four participles that Paul uses to kind of amplify the exhortation in verse 6. So verse 6, Therefore, as you have received, or as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There's this necessary step as we look more at walk in him, necessary step that we need to take before we can walk in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Let's think about what happened in this town in the Roman Empire. There was a man named Epaphras who had come to know the Lord Jesus through the witness and ministry of the Apostle Paul, likely in a town further to the west. And then had gone back to his hometown of Colossae, empowered by the Spirit and uh, no doubt impassioned by his new life in Jesus, and had begun to share the good news that God, the Creator God, reigns over all the world and that he had sent his Son, Jesus, into the world to die on a cross and be raised from the dead and that through his Son and the proclamation of this good news that there could be forgiveness of sins, a fresh start for all those who would turn to him in repentance and faith and begin to walk with him. And people in Colossae heard that good news declared from Epaphras, and they responded to the good news of this gospel, and they found their hearts strangely warmed, and their lives began to change as they responded to this good news. And that led them then to the public act or the the ritual act that symbolizes this transformation of baptism, where they were buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and raised to new life with Jesus, And in those days, that would have been a very risky 
step to take in the Greco-Roman world, where Caesar was known as Lord and where this new little thing called Christianity was very new on the scene and was, certainly didn't enjoy any protections from the empire. They would have gone to the waters of baptism and there the confession would be made from 1 Corinthians 12, 3, the basic baptismal confession, the basic confession of every follower of Jesus, which is simple, it's three words, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Paul's language here implied a reception of the teaching about Jesus as Messiah and Lord. In fact, I think it's best to take Christ in this case, which comes before Jesus, as the title Messiah, which is what it means. Received the Messiah, Jesus, the Lord. And this word used here of received is carried over from Judaism and often used in a technical sense, in the sense of a transmission of teaching from one generation to the next, a handing down of a body of teaching and truth to the next generation that's consistent with what he says in verse 7, just as you were taught. Consider 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, where Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. We receive the truth about Jesus, the good news of the gospel and all that God is doing in the world. And so Paul's focus here is, uh, in, this, in this verse is on the reception of the, by the Colossians of the teaching about Jesus, the confession of their faith that he is Messiah and Lord and that they've been given a new identity and a new status in him. And it's this teaching that God has revealed that will then serve as the protection for this young church against what Paul calls in verse 8, the philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. This teaching will ground them. Those teenagers who are getting confirmed and baptized today um, have spent many months now with our minister to families and youth, Adam Herndon, uh, learning and receiving this great tradition, the teaching of the church and of the faith of the gospel that comes out, of course, of the biblical word, the, the, the scriptural word of God's word. And they've been learning about who God is and who Jesus is and what salvation is and what we expect, what our hope is in the future and what the church is and all of this teaching that's been handed on from one generation from Jesus to the apostles and then through them and their spirit-inspired writings of the scriptures to us. They've received that teaching. Therefore, as you've received, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord. As we think together about this exhortation, walk in him, the first question we have to ask is, have we received him? Have we received this teaching? Is this now the foundation of our lives? Do we know the revelation of God in Christ and what this means for his world and for all of us and for his church? That step must be taken. And even though the Christian life, as this letter so wonderfully illustrates and emphasizes again and again, the Christian life is a communal life. We've been called into this life together in a community. It is true that we must respond to this teaching or receive this teaching, each of us individually. There, there aren't any buddy passes in the Christian life, so to speak. You can't just kind of get in because your friend gets in. But we receive this teaching and we respond to it in repentance and faith as individuals. And then we begin to walk. So first question is, have you received him? And then this exhortation of walk in him. This is where your new life is. It's in Jesus. Not in anything else. And you were raised with Christ in the waters of baptism. And now Christ is your life, as Paul will say in verse 4 of chapter 3. 
So he says, so walk in him. Press in to the new life that you have in him. The word walk here in a Jewish understanding is a way of emphasizing behavior or ethical conduct to which Paul will return as he deals first and we'll look at next week with some of the obstacles. He'll turn in verse 1 of chapter 3 to thinking about what this new life in Jesus actually looks, looks like. But the metaphor of walking for thinking about this is actually really wonderful because walking is something that we all do every day. It is the kind of basic day-to-day stuff of life, the real stuff on the ground. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to walk in your day-to-day life in him. This is an invitation to acknowledge and live out this reality that our whole life is completely encompassed in Jesus. Remember who Jesus is, of course, according to this letter in chapter 1. We spent some time on that wonderful, exalted poetry of verses 15 through 20, talking about Christ as the Lord of the creation and the Lord of the new creation. In him, all things hold together. And what Paul is saying is walk forward in your life in the reality of the one who is the cosmic Lord over all. In 2019, my oldest and I, Chloe, went on a father-son, father-daughter rafting trip through the Grand Canyon. So we were, we were on the second half of the trip and were there for 13 days. And, and once we were into the canyon, everything that we did took place in the context of the Grand Canyon. Our rafting, hiking, sleeping, eating, doing the dishes, our fear, our joy, our fatigue, our hunger, our explorations and our rest, all of this took place in the context of this wonderful, you know, wonder of the natural world that has such a tremendous, uh, is is such a tremendous window into the power and handiwork of the God who made it. But everything took place in the canyon, in the context of the canyon. And I offer that to you as a kind of illustration of what Paul is saying when he says, walk in him. It is to recognize that everything in our lives, whether we're bankers or busboys or in our 80s or our teenager or younger than that, all of our lives are lived in the sphere of Christ, in the reality of Christ, this cosmic Lord in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the context of our living, our walking, our waking, and our sleeping. And every breath, every decision, every hour, every day is lived in and under his presence. Walk in him. Let me make three observations about this exhortation before we move to verse 7. First, I want to make sure that we hear the exhortation rightly in light of the gift of God in Christ to us because it's possible to hear this exhortation, walk in him, as something that is too hard and too demanding. We may hear walk in him and feel like, hey, look, I can hardly walk at all right now. You know, it was a real victory of mine to just get up out of bed today and come here to worship let alone to conform to the holy will of a living God. The road is just too hard. The demands are too great. And if that describes you in any way, if walking in him feels more like a burden than a blessed invitation, then I want you to remember just the magnitude of the gift that we have received in Jesus Christ, our Lord, which is, of course, at the center of our proclamation It's at the center of the biblical witness. It's at the center of everything that God wants us to know about himself and his purposes in the world is that Christ died for you, that he was raised for you, 
that he reigns over the heavens and the earth, and that he's offering to you genuine forgiveness and new life in him. This Christ who did these things is the one who is the cosmic Lord over all, and he's the Lord who's not just over all, but as we saw last week or two weeks ago when, when I was here, that he's the Lord who is in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And if walking him feels burdensome, just let's, let's hear the words and the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we hear the exhortation to walk in him, we are invited to take up his easy yoke and his light burden, and to step into life in a deeper and more profound way, day by day. We have a new identity that brings genuine rest and liberty and freedom as a child of God. And we are invited into more of that rest and life as we walk in him. Second thing to say is that though this life is a gift, it isn't automatic. If it were automatic, then Paul would have no reason to write this letter to the church in Colossae, preserved for us by God's spirit to the church even today. He would have no reason to exhort the church there to walk in him. No, there there is actually a need to continue. There's a need to step into this life that has been given to us as a gift from our heavenly father through Christ. And this ongoing perseverance in the Christian life is continually inspired by our hope in Jesus, by his love for us. But that hope and that love then leads us to putting one foot in front of the other, seeking the things that are above, setting our minds on the things above, putting to death what is earthly in us, putting on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. And over all these things, putting on love, which binds them all together. I'm quoting right there all of that from Colossians 3. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. But we're called to step into this. To walk in him engages our now liberated will to walk now in step with the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in us. And this means that your Christian life, my Christian life, is not like binge-watching a show on Netflix, which is super easy, and you can kind of get just lost into it passively. But it's much more like learning a foreign language. It takes effort and practice and repetition and discipline and focus. And we put all of those things into it, not because often, like, if you're in school, some of you teenagers are getting, you know, well, you're not in school right now, you're probably out for summer, but, you know, when you're taking a foreign language in school, you do all of that so you can get a good grade at the end. Well, we don't do that in the Christian life. We've received God's wonderful affirmation that we are his beloved sons and daughters. But we, we begin to put that effort into this Christian life because we long to please the Father who has received us and to reflect his life more and more into the world because we are beloved children who are eager to embody the new ways of the life of the kingdom into which we have been invited. Again, this isn't automatic. We are called to participate with God, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who so powerfully works within you, Paul says in Philippians. So it's not automatic. 
And the third thing that I'd like to say about this exhortation to walk in him is that it's just this, that you will walk in something. And you don't, we don't have a choice. We will all walk in some context or sphere with some kind of values and goals, with certain kinds of ambitions and visions of what human flourishing is and looks like. We will walk. We can't avoid walking, but we can walk in the wrong direction or in the wrong sphere. There are plenty of alleys and pathways that can sidetrack us. Paul knows this. And that's why he's exhorting them to walk in him. Think about the parable of the sower. Remember the seed that is sown among the thorns, that it takes root and begins to grow, but then the life of that seed is choked by the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of riches or the desire for other things, these things that can keep us from walking in Christ. One blatant one for the Colossians is what we'll encounter next week in the rest of chapter 2 is this plausible argument that Paul describes, likely probably some form of Judaism that is not grounded in Christ. Another one for the church in Colossae is the, un, the, over, the overarching narrative of the culture of their day, the Pax Romana, the repressive but strong ideology of the Roman Empire where Caesar is Lord and they're invited to participate in that empire. In our day, we can get distracted by an emphasis on success according to the standards of the world or by putting our hope in political realities or in increasing popularity at school or in romantic endeavors, countless other things that can take us off track from walking in him. We do well to remember Paul's exhortation to the church in Rome, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There are traps and snares and temptations to walk in another sphere or in another way. And in the midst of that world, then we turn from this exhortation, walk in him to the four participles in verse seven, where Paul uses metaphors that emphasize stability and security as he gives encouragement for how we're to walk this road with Jesus. So these metaphors that he uses are to help us as we seek to walk in him. And there are four here, rooted, built up, established, and abounding. So look at verse seven, rooted. He begins with rooted. This has dimensions of agriculture or horticulture this is about a plant taking root and he switches his metaphors a lot here in verse 7 but this fruit bearing metaphor that's been used already twice in, in Colossians chapter 1 remember that that the church is now the place where that ultimate fulfillment of the Genesis 1 calling to be fruitful and multiply is now being made known to the world that it's in the life of Jesus that there is genuine fruit being born and so it's no surprise that Paul will come back to that idea of something that's growing and organic and say be rooted Jeremiah 17 which we read earlier blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit as he exhorts them to walk in him he reminds them that you have been rooted this is a perfect tense participle and you've been rooted as a past reality that continues to have effect on the present day you've been rooted not not by this like stream but but in the living water in life itself himself in jesus the source of life the author of life and then to return to the parable of the sower being rooted there you can now bear fruit 30 60 and 100 fold he then shifts to architecture built up being built up 
This is a present passive participle that implies it's an ongoing reality, that you're being built up. And the metaphor here is one of ongoing building. And just, just three quick things on how we're built up according to what he's already said. First, a growth in a knowledge of his will. That's verse 9 of chapter 1. And we grow in that through a study of God's word that is inspired and illuminated by his spirit. Second, in a growth in the loving community of the people of God. So verse 2 of chapter 2, he, he wants our hearts to be knit together in love. And so we grow through the community. And then third, that through a reflection on all that God has done. So verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, what he's done for us, which inspires joyful thanksgiving. Those would be three just small ways I would talk about being, that we continue to be built up. You know, there are a lot of buildings being built in the skyline of Boston right now. It's kind of a, a building season. And I want you this week, as you see the skyline or as you see those buildings, just to think of those as pictures of you and your life in Jesus, that you're being built up by the Spirit of God, brick by brick, stone by stone, glass pane by glass pane, as the building is being formed. This is going on in you, Paul's saying. You're being built up. This architectural metaphor, when Paul uses it, usually has the temple in mind. We are being built into a new temple, the new meeting place of heaven and earth, the place where God dwells. That is Christ, in whom the full Fullness of deity dwells bodily, and now in us as his body. And the temple was a place of fruit-bearing growth as well. So the building metaphor and the horticultural metaphor are, are blended together in places like Psalm 52. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. And Paul brings building and growing together in Ephesians 2 when he says that the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So with these two metaphors, Paul's drawing attention to the fact that Christ is now the mediator between God and man. He is the place where heaven and earth meet. And being in him, the one who is the image of the invisible God, to be rooted and built up in him is to be growing in the true source of life itself. And there is no better place to be and nothing else that is necessary, as he'll go on to say for the rest of chapter 2. Then third, being established in the faith or established in the faith. And the faith here means the entire teaching of what God is doing in the world so that he continues just as you were taught in verse 7. This is the whole body of truth. In a systematic sense, yes, but also in a narrative sense. The faith here includes understanding what God is doing in the world from Genesis to Revelation, what this world actually is as his creation, what we are as his image bearers, and how we, we fit and take our place in that broader work of God in the world and participate in the mission of God moving forward. This is our story that we inhabit now, not we're not inhabiting some other lesser or smaller or incomplete story, but we're inhabiting this true reality of what God is doing as the creator of all things and the redeemer of all things. And it's this big framework, a worldview or a narrative that Paul invites them to go on being established in and says they are being established in. I just wonder, what, what is your framework for reality? What are the lenses through which you view the problems of the world, the problems perhaps of your own life, your hopes and aspirations? Is it the framework of the cosmic Christ in, through, and for whom all things were made and in whom all things hold together? Paul calls them here to be engaged in that ongoing process of being established in God's true work in the world. The story that Epaphras made aware to them in the gospel and that Paul is filling in some of the details here in this letter to the church. 
Is this our dominant understanding of the world, of what's going on in the world? To walk in him, we do so as those who are, in an ongoing sense, being established in this faith. And then lastly, he says, abounding in thanksgiving. We've already encountered this in chapter 1. We'll encounter it again in chapter 3. It's a theme of this little letter that we are to overflow with gratitude and thanksgiving for all that God has done in our midst. This life that we enjoy, this liberation that we have come to know in Jesus is such an amazing work of God that we are called as we walk in him to be abounding in thanksgiving. You know, our minister to women, Chris May, has been talking a lot about joy lately and our staff times together, and she's quick to point out that the first key in joy is gratitude. And it's true. We are called to be a people who are grateful. But it's not just gratitude. It is gratitude for the big things, for the work of redemption and the death and resurrection of Jesus, for the outpouring and the gift of the Spirit. But it's also gratitude and thanksgiving for the little things. And I wonder, have you cultivated a sense of seeing the fingerprints of God in your day-to-day life? You ever ask the question, where is God? Where have you seen God at work? Maybe around the dinner table. Our family this week saw God at work in a very powerful way in, uh, in, in a kind of littler part of our lives. And we sat around the, the kitchen island and we, we kind of reconstructed the narrative of how we had been praying and how God had answered that prayer and looked at all the little details and we were just kind of overwhelmed at what God was doing in those little things. And we, we finished the time by just stopping and praying and giving thanks to God. Do we see how he's working in the world and in our lives and give thanks to him? The big things are enough to overflow, but the little things help along the way to be abounding in thanksgiving. So as we finish, let's walk in him. I want to close with this point. We can only walk in him from where we are. Going back to that idea of the Grand Canyon and the idea of the cosmic King Jesus, everything that we are experiencing right now in our lives can be experienced in the sphere of Christ, under Christ. And so we can walk through it. So the the next step that you take may be different than the next step that I need to take or that the person next to you needs to take because we're all in different places. And some of you have walked in here and you may be doubting this morning. You may be discouraged. You may be struggling with depression or some kind of physical ailment or illness that's really difficult. Some of you may have walked in encouraged and excited and joyful about what the summer has to bring and what you're looking forward to. The call to walk in him, the exhortation to walk in him is just to take the next step. For some of you, that step may be a a prayer of lament. It could be a, a protest before God. Like the psalmist, it could be crying out to him in anguish. For others of you, that next step may be a practical act of service to somebody that you know in in your life that you just kind of had God tugging on you to be involved in and engaged in. Whatever that step may be, walking in him just implies taking that next step under his lordship as those who have received Christ Jesus the Lord and as those who are rooted, being built, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving. Walk in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this central part of this letter. And I pray especially for people this morning who may be discouraged, who may want to give up. I just pray that there would be 
a strong encouragement from your spirit to continue to walk in you, Lord Jesus. What a gift and a privilege it is to be your children, Father. To be related to you through your Son and to have the Spirit. We pray that you would give us grace to walk in you. Everything that we see is under your Lordship, Jesus. And we pray that we would live as such. Each day, each hour, each decision in the week ahead. And we pray this in your name. Amen.